I've talked quite a bit on here before about being a linguistic conservative. A linguistic, linguini conservative. That sounds like one of those terms they have. Like a, a rhino, a Republican in name only. A, a linguini, he's a linguini conservative. All these terms they come up with. And you never even know what it means. Like it has some roots in something. Like ling, like that. I'm just making that one up. But, you know, these terms have roots in something in the era in which the phrase was coined. And you can totally see that, like, a linguini conservative. But anyway, linguistic conservative. Where, you know, I'm just... I'm not just reluctant and slow. <laughs> I'm also... Like, I also, like, feel personally offended when something new is introduced that I feel is unnecessary, especially with language. Talked a lot about that with slang. You adopt new slang. To me, that means you'll put anything in your mouth. If you put new slang in your mouth, you'll put anything in your mouth. And I don't trust people who put anything in their mouth. But anyway, um, you know, for me, it's like I also feel personally offended by that. Like, I don't actually personalize it. I just, I feel disgusted. And uh, some people don't, though. Like, some people hear new slang, and it's, like, exciting. And it's not even just slang. Like, like it's even things I hate. Like, it's not just, like, a word that I like is being replaced, and that upsets me. There's words I hate, and it also bothers me when a new term takes that word's place. Like, a good example of that is, like, when the internet was new, AOL and all that, little smiley faces were called emoticons. Even as, like, a 13-year-old, when I first heard that term, saw that term used, I thought it was the dumbest thing in the world. Emoticon. I'll make sure you use the emoticon. I'm like, it's called a fucking smiley face. If you just call them smiley faces, which is what they are... Everybody knows what you're talking about. Why invent some stupid term, emoticon? And so I hated that term from the start. But what's funny is in the last few years when this term emoji... Oh, they, we, they're using lots of emojis. Uh, when, I, when I first heard that, I was offended by that. Even though I hated the word it was replacing, emoticon, it bothered me that somebody had to come up with something new on top of that. It is worse. I mean, in that case, like, emoji does sound worse. Like, it sounds almost exotic. Emoji. Oh, it sounds Asian. It sounds Japanese. It sounds Japanese. Emoji. So I think the, uh, emoticon just sounded so bad. Like, it, no, it's not catchy. It's hard to pronounce. I don't even know if I'm saying it right right now. But I kind of liked that it was like rigid and awkward. It was like not very, not a, emoticon wasn't a very friendly word. And I kind of like that. I kind of like that it's a word that just sounds blocky. Sounds very blocky. Sounds blocky. Sounds blocky. But then emoji, it's softer. It's, it's got like a slight, like because it ends in a J-I, it sounds kind of exotic. But anyway, I wasn't even going to talk about words. Just, I can't even bring up the word, the language issue, without just going into it. That's how passionate I am about it. But I was bringing this up because, you know, I have a little trail that runs behind my house. It's a wetlands. It's not very big. But it's got a trail that begins literally right next to my house. And then it, it goes down to this little man-made lake. And I know the lady who the lake is named after. I think, I hope she's still alive, but she was a friend of my mom's whose dad made that lake eons ago and then named it after her, his daughter, Lake Louise. And I never met her in person, but after my mom died, I corresponded with her, Lake Louise. And I was like, I know the lake that's named after you. But anyway, it's just a little trail that goes down there, and then there's this like little wetlands loop trail too. Very nice, secluded spot. Love having it. I used to walk it every day for years. I barely walk it. I actually just finished walking it because 
I got a letter in the mail that said they're going to develop it a little bit. They're going to they're planning to build a little boardwalk. And they're going to pave part of the trail. Like not the part by my house. Thank thank goodness they're not going to pave the trail by my house. They're going to pave like the opposite entrance and like put in a little parking lot. Like right now there's just a strip of dirt where like five cars can park. They're going to build like a 10 car parking lot. I'm not even bothered by the concept. I mean, I am a little bit where like, what is up with paving trails? Like I understand if it's a bike trail, like there's this major bike trail that runs throughout like, not just this county, but like the, the county below. I mean, I think you can actually ride it all the way from Canada to Oregon. But it runs through like this entire town, obviously. If it runs from Canada to Oregon, obviously it goes through this entire town. And that's paved. But it also makes sense. It's just this really long fucking path. And it's intended to be ridden by bicyclists and stuff, so it's paved. There are a few other trails that are more like the high-end popular trails here that'll have like part of the path is paved. It's not the end of the world, but it, it always makes me think about... This goes back to something I've talked about on here for years, like everything, but... You know, I've talked before on here how, like... How do you define man? How do you define humans? Well, he's a species that... Turns rock into hot liquid... And pours it over everything... And lets it harden... And then... Doesn't feel like he can go anywhere... Unless liquid rock has been laid down there like if you live in my part of the world like you pretty much believe you can only drive if hot liquid rock has been laid down and left to harden a lot of people don't even feel comfortable walking that's what I'm getting at here there's a lot of people they don't even feel comfortable walking if liquid rock hasn't been laid down and left to harden like, they don't think they can walk there. Like, even a trail. Like, you think about, like, a trail. Like, it's, you know, some of them get muddy. You know, some of them can be difficult to walk. Like, they're, they're narrow and they're muddy and all that. But, like, most trails in the woods here, at least ones that are walked regularly by people, like, it, it just kind of gets, like, the dirt gets packed in. It's, it's very walkable. It's soft on your feet. You know, you're not walking on concrete the entire time. And, uh, you know, but there's people who, like, that is intimidating to them. It's, it's very foreign to me that there's people who think that. Like, they see a trail that, in my eyes, is, is extremely accessible and walkable. Maybe even too much for me. Maybe I want it to be a little more rugged than it even is. But they see it and they're like, oh my god, I can't walk that... Where's the liquid rock? Where's the liquid rock? Where's the liquid rock? You know, they, they, that's how they think. And I'm reminded of that because there's, there's a wonderful lady who lives across the street from me. And uh, she looks out for me. She looks out for my house. Well, just a wonderful woman. We have a really good neighborly relationship. And uh, older woman, like senior citizen. But like one time we had a conversation about the trail and she's never even been back there. She's lived here forever. She's never even walked the trail across the street from her house. And she was just like, I don't know about that trail. She doesn't sound like that, but, you know, still. I don't know about that trail. Like, I just don't, I don't trust it. And I'm just like, wow, this is a really nice, simple little trail. But to her, like, she sees something negative. Like, it's intimidating to her. And so, like, there's a lot of people out there, though, where it's like, oh, yeah, we got, we got to pave it. Oh, hey, we're going out into nature. We're going to... The, the park behind my house is literally called a nature park. It's, it's actual formal name has nature park in it. And they're wanting to develop it a little bit, make it more accessible. And their idea is, well, let, let's make part of the path concrete. And it's like, that defeats the whole purpose. You're not going out into the woods so you can walk on concrete the entire time. But going back to the conservative thing, like, even though I don't even think it's the worst, I don't like the concrete thing, but I do like, if they're going to build a little boardwalk by the lake, I think that's cool. 
I could see myself going back and enjoying a little boardwalk. I love boardwalks. I love boardwalks. I love boardwalks. I love boardwalks. I love them. Um, but uh, like, so I can get I can get into that. Like, I don't. I don't it's not going to like ruin the park for me. But it's like my initial impulse is they're changing it, and they've already made some little changes that rub me the wrong way. Like, in the last year or two, they rerouted part of the trail. Like I said, I used to go back there every single day. I had all these little spots. Like, I knew what a good safe spot was to piss in. Like, women always say, like, oh, you're lucky to be a guy because guys can just piss wherever they want. Like, no, we can't. Yeah, maybe if you're a, you're a crude animal of a man, but I'm pee shy. And I'm just polite. I'm pee shy and I'm polite. I'm pee shy and I'm polite. I'm not just, I don't just pit, I don't just whip it out on a trail. Like I've, the only other men's dickies that I've seen in my life in person, I've never seen any of my friends' dickies. The only dickies I've ever seen were on trails, like twice. Like one time I was walking a trail and this guy was like with his friends and he, I was like a w- little ways behind them. And then he just like turned around and like decided to like let his friends go ahead so he could piss. But he was just like on the trail pissing, like facing where I was coming from. Like he wasn't pissing where you walk. He was kind. He was kind of angled to the side, so he was like pissing into the bushes. But like if you were coming down the trail where I was, and you came upon him, which I did, I just straight up saw this guy's dicky, and it's weird to see urine coming out of it too. It's better than the alternative. Like, I'd rather see urine coming out of his dicky than, like, him just holding his dick. But still, like, I've seen very few fellow men's dickies in my life in person. And that guy's one of the few. He's part of an exclusive club. Another time I saw it, too, same, similar circumstances, where, like, a guy was pissing on a trail, but he didn't, like, find a side trail... He didn't go off to the side. He was like, I'll just piss here. I think the third time I've seen another man's dicky, I was going to Westport, Washington, which is like this tiny fishing town on the coast. And as I was driving into town, there was just like this classic hobo, like a traditional hobo, like gray beard, like just who knows what his clothes were. It was just like, it looks like he turned a blanket into an outfit. And he was just on the side of the road, drunk, just pissing. And the, so, I, and yeah, I saw urine coming out of his dicky too. So, two out of the three dickies I've seen, I actually saw urine leaving their penis. Like not graphically, not like zoomed in, but I saw it. And uh, anyway, the whole point of saying that though is just that, like, whenever I've pissed on a trail, like I find a little nook. One, because I'm pee shy. Two, because I'm polite. Three, because I'm polite and I'm pee shy. I find like a little place to go, like a side trail, like a little area off the trail. And so like the trail behind my house, you know, where my mom lived, you know, before she died and I lived way, you know, back in the day and stuff. I would go back there every day. So I knew the exact spots where like a pee shy, polite guy goes to piss. Where a pee shy and polite guy goes to piss. Those were also the same spots where I used to smoke weed. Back when weed was illegal and I was younger and like wanted to smoke all the time. I just, I never, see my my philosophy on smoking weed is very similar to my philosophy on pissing. I prefer to do it at home. If I had a choice, I would always smoke weed and I would piss at home. I don't like to use public restrooms. I don't like to smoke weed in public. So coincidentally, in the woods, I do them in the same places. Not not so coincidentally. But anyway, uh, like, so that trail, like I used to go back there every day, but like the trail's been the same as long as it's been there. And they'll do occasionally things like some of the muddy spots, they'll add gravel, which is way better than laying down concrete. Like if there's mud on a trail, lay down gravel works it's magic people can walk over it now or build a little bridge build a little footbridge or a boardwalk 
don't lay down concrete but in the last couple years like they rerouted one of the trails and it's weird because they should have consulted with me like i've probably spent more time on that trail than maybe anybody ever like i, I never thought about that but i i think i've probably spent more hours on that trail than anybody ever and i'm the closest house to it too so for the last 20 years, like my mom lived there and now I live there, we, we're like the keepers of the trail. Like the trail, like it runs right next to our house and behind our house, my house. So uh, not only am I, is my house positioned to be like the keeper, the guard of the trail, but I've, I, I would bet money that I've spent more time on that actual trail than any other human being in history. I've spent 19 years back there. And uh, they should have asked me, like, in what ways could we improve this trail? And I, I would have told them the exact spots where it floods, where it's too muddy to walk. I mean, I kind of like that because it keeps people off the trail. I don't like populated trails. But still, like, I'm all for improving it in... in Log logical ways logical ways I'm all for improving it and I could have told you the exact spots that really do need to be rerouted a little bit and I don't really believe in rerouting because I'm a traditionalist and conservative in that way but I can at least tell you where it could be improved they just randomly rerouted one part of the trail they got a little bit muddy but not really, it wasn't an unwalkable part. The far more treacherous parts of the trail, they didn't even touch. And I wouldn't want them to. But those at least, it at least would have been a logical improvement. They decided to reroute a completely random part. I don't know why. I just know they did it. And they try, they, they, they set it up to try to deter you to, from walking the old part of the trail. But it's still there. Like, you can't just get rid of a trail overnight. So, like, I, I just walked the woods just now for the first time in months. I hate to admit, I haven't been back there much lately. But uh, I always walk the original part of the trail. And when I was doing it, I was like, oh, this is that conservative impulse in me. Like, this is the same part of me that rejects new developments in language. This is the same part of me that rejects, here's a good one. They renamed, like Olympia's had this big park, Priest Point Park. It's been named Priest Point Park as long as I've lived here, long before. They renamed it recently. It's now called Squaxin Park, which is like a Native American, it's like the local Native American tribe. But it's confusing because we already have a Squaxin Island which is on the complete opposite side of the city from Squaxin Park. Squaxin Park, Squaxin Park. So it's confusing. Like, I was looking at a map. I had forgotten they changed the name. They had changed Priest Point's name. And I was looking at a map, and I saw Squaxin Park, and I thought I was looking at the wrong part of Olympia because I see Squaxin, and I think of Squaxin Island, which has parks on it. And it's probably part of some, like, politically correct, like, renaming things. Like, I mean, it's silly to do that around here. Like, it's kind of like them renaming schools. Like, this push to rename things using, like, the indigenous names. People who feel very guilty like to do that. But, like, the, the funny thing about it is... Um... What's the funny thing about it? Is there anything funny about it? Uh, I don't remember what I was going to say about I don't remember what was funny. But but anyway, like they, they like to rename things like that. Like guilty people. People who have like some sort of internalized guilt think by like naming something the indigenous name that it somehow makes it better. It somehow it's like some sort of half-assed apology or something. But like I refuse to call it Squawks and Park. Oh, what I was going to say, well, the funny, the funny thing is, is that, like, everything around here already has a Native American name. Like, if you live in Washington State, like, everything already has, like, t there's entire cities and towns, like, half the state 
uses Native American language and names. So it's like, it's funny when like way after the fact, we're like, we really need to turn Priest Point Park into Squawkson Park. Squawkson Park. Squawkson. And I refuse to call it that. No disrespect to the Squawkson tribe. I just, I don't like changes like that. And I told my friend, like a liberal girl, and she was like, fuck that. Because even, it's not even about politics. It's not about politic politics. Like, tons of people have that same conservative mentality. People who are otherwise progressive don't realize how conservative they truly are because a lot of them react to changes like that negatively. Like, you see this with, with like, baby names and shit. Like, at work the other day, people were, like, complaining about new baby names. Like, everybody's naming the kids this and this. I react that way to that, too. But what's funny is, it's like, that's a conservative... You're expressing yourself conservatively. Like, when you hear new baby names, like, Rally, Haley... I mean, those aren't even that old, like... But it's like whenever you see trends in baby names or like people start inventing, like the trend a few years ago that's probably over now, but when people were naming every kid like, uh, I don't even remember what the name was. It was like, not Jordan. Jordan was popular for a while. Oh, what was that name? I don't, I don't even know. Jaden. That's the one I was thinking of. Jaden. Like everyone was naming their kids like Jaden, Hayden, this and that. And people kind of hated it. They're like, oh, every, every new parent's naming their kid Jaden now. That's a conservative expression. When you hear new names you don't like or you're not comfortable with, they rub you the wrong way, you almost have like that disgust response. You almost resent it. it all, you almost feel personally offended, even though it doesn't matter at all. Like, na- there have been stupid names forever. Stupid names forever. But, like, for some reason, this, like, this new development rubs you the wrong way. But it's like you even do it with stuff that doesn't matter. Like, there's a grocery store here, and it was called Top Foods Forever. Stupid names forever, Top Foods Forever. When I moved here, it was called Top Foods. I guess it was called Top Foods for decades. It's been here forever. I just keep saying forever. Forever, forever. And in the last, like, I don't know, maybe 10 years, they changed it to Hagen. Same company. And they already had, like, this company, like, Hagen is the parent name of the entire grocery company. But for some reason, some of their stores were called Top Foods, while others were called Hagen. But they decided to just go with Hagen for all their stores now. I still call it Top Foods. And I have a friend who grew up here... And if you, if you say, I'm going to Hagen, she'll go, you mean Top Foods? So, like, a lot of different types of people feel this way, where it's like, we don't call it Hagen. Like, my friend Nick, some years back, he was visiting our hometown. Like, he, he always goes to uh, Kirkland, our hometown, for Thanksgiving. And the night before Thanksgiving, there's this, like, this big get-together of all, like, the healthy, normal families... And they just, like, get together and drink at, at, local, at a local bar. And so he was there visiting. And uh, he ran into this kid who was kind of our friend, like, that kid's older brother. And we grew up with the older brother, too. He's just a couple years older than us. He was always around. We knew him well. Kind of a dork. Kind of a dork. Kind of a dork. But he kind of a dork, but nice guy. And he's now a teacher at our old school. He never left town. I mean, if he, he left for college or something for a few years, and then he just returned to his hometown and like decided to teach at the school he went to. Classic American story. But they t- in the last like 15 years, they converted our old junior high into a middle school. And all my friends and I were upset. For some reason, that rubbed us the wrong way. Like, I brought it up with my sister, and she didn't like it either. It doesn't impact us in any way. It, it does change what the school is. Like, we, we went to Kirkland Junior High, which was a dungeon of a school. It was, it was falling apart. It was dark. It was a dungeon. 
kids were just mean to each other. That's where the teacher had the affair with a student and went to prison. Talked about that before. So, it, you know, it wasn't a, a beautiful place, but it, it felt necessary. Kirkland Junior High felt necessary, and it was grades 7 through 9. They tore it down, rebuilt it as like a new middle school, and it's grades 6 through 8. And so this guy that we, who, couple our friend's older brother, he now teaches there. And uh, my buddy Nick ran into him at this bar like the night before Thanksgiving, and they were talking about it, and Nick referred to Kirkland Junior High. And this guy, his name's Jason, I think. Yeah, Jason. And Jason was like, you mean Kirkland Middle School? And Nick said, no, you know, I, I still call it junior high. And he goes, no, but it's a middle school now. It's a middle school is different because he like gave him an, what we call an explanation. You know how I feel about explanations. Not a description. A description is honest. As the Sun City Girls said, explanations only come from liars. A description will do. He launched into a whole explanation about like why a middle school is different, why it's important to refer to it as a middle school and not the junior high. Like, and Nick just kept saying no, and it actually got tense. Like one of the parents like stepped in and was like, "Oh, that's enough, guys. That's enough." But it was actually kind of like a standoff. This guy was like, "It's called. It's a middle school now." But like Nick is somebody who has that sort of conservative impulse. He's not politically conservative. He's not like me. But he has that same exact impulse. That's why, you know, you know that, that I understand the way he thinks, and I think the same way. Where to him, it's offensive. It's somehow offensive that it's now called a middle school and not a junior high. And it is. It's different. It has a slightly different age range. And that's not nothing. Like, you know, eighth grade is actually way different than ninth grade. Sixth grade is actually way different than seventh grade. Like, we're not talking about the difference between age 44 and 45. Like, the age difference between, like, a 12-year-old and a 13-year-old is huge. A year in a kid's life is monumental. But still, even though I, I fully acknowledge that a middle school is a different entity than a junior high, it pisses me off to call it middle school. It was, it was, uh, the junior high was good enough for, for us, so it's good enough for everybody. It's a junior high. There's only one, there's only one name for it, and that's Kirkland Junior High. But so a lot of us feel this way, where we're like, no. I don't want to call it by the new thing. It's Priest Point Park. It's an emoticon. It's Kirkland Junior High. Same thing about other changes, like things that don't even impact your life in any way. Some of us have kind of a guttural, visceral reaction to that, where we're like, I don't like the change. And it's not just being resistant to change. Like It's not just like being unable to change on your own. There's something about like just being told, oh, we've changed it to this. And it's like, who changed it? I mean, I don't remember who I was talking about this, but when I was doing job interviews like a month ago, I was thinking about some of the changes that happen, not in terms of like work itself, but in like the industry of like job hunting and how like people, somehow these decisions just get made to like use new terms. Like if you go a few years without looking for jobs, like and you look up like what the current standard is. Like my entire life, it was called a resume. I never heard anything else. Your employment history was your resume. Update your resume. Oh, there's that. You update your resume. But like in the industry itself, like the because you know it's there's an entire job industry around getting people jobs and teaching people how to get jobs. Like we have a building here called WorkSource. And when I was on unemployment years ago, I had to go to the a couple of classes there that like teach you how to make a resume. You have to do it to qualify for unemployment. And they always tell you things like, you know, if you were looking for jobs five years ago, 
They were telling you to do this, but if you do that now, employers will just throw your resume in the trash. Like one of those was like putting your photo on your resume. I've never done that. In my entire life, I never put like a headshot on my resume, but that was big for a while. They were like headhunters and work source places that like recommended like, oh, put your headshot on your resume. And then like now the current standard is like, if you put your headshot on your resume, they'll just throw it right out. If employers see you use this word, they'll just throw you right. There's always this threat. There's, always, there's so much fear of if, if, you, if, if, it, if a prospective employer sees you do that, they'll just throw your resume in the trash. They won't even look at it. You always hear these like threats. And there are people who do that, but like, where does that come from? Like, where does, where does like the industry standard come from for like hiring people where it's like, oh, if they're doing this, just throw it right out. Like, where do these trends come from? Like, where is this acceptance? Like, this is the way to do it now. Like, who makes that decision? I feel like it's just job security for people who are in like the job hunting industry. They just like decide, oh, we're changing this. And like, honestly, most employers I've had don't even care about that shit. And like, you wouldn't want to work for the ones who do. Like, you wouldn't want to work for a company whose HR lady interviewing you is like going down a checklist of like the latest industry standards on like what a resume should look like. But what I was going to say is, uh, I've noticed this, this isn't just brand new, but I've noticed in the last few years, it could be 10 years, could be five years, but I've noticed like all of a sudden people are always talking about their CV. I never remember seeing that when I was younger. I'm sure that term is old. I don't think that's a new term. I mean, I know it's Latin curriculum vitae or whatever. I don't even know how to pronounce that. I know it's a Latin term and it's probably it's probably older in older use than the term resume. But point being like you never heard it when I was growing up. You never heard people say like got to update your CV. You got to keep your CV updated. You, you got to get you got to have a copy of your CV in your phone so you can just email it to an employer on the spot or you'll never get a job. So much threats. I was told that at one point. I think it was probably in one of those resume classes I had. They were like, you better keep your, your CV on your phone. Because you might meet a, you might have a job opportunity where someone wants to see your resume. And if you can't email it to them from your phone, you'll, 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 you won't get the job. They make it sound so stressful and fear-based. And like, when I was looking for a job recently, I didn't have, like, I needed a new job and everything. But like, I didn't go into it with that fear. I didn't like look up like what the current standard. I mean, a good example of that is like when I was first like looking at jobs after college, 2008, really bad economy, really hard to find a job at that time. I remember like being told that like you should put your objective at the top of a resume. You should put your objective. My goal is to get a job doing this that makes this much money. You know, it was like some kind of objective. And it felt kind of dorky at the time, but you were recommended, they recommended that you do that. And recently, like in the last couple of months when I was updating my resume, I was reading like, oh, nobody puts objectives at the top anymore. If you put an objective at the top of your resume, the employees will just throw it right out. They won't even look at it. So the same like idle threats you always hear. And uh, instead, like, I, I wrote, I was like, I don't like getting rid of that. Like, I think ha on a resume, having, like, a small, succinct piece of writing about yourself is good. I don't care what they tell you. I don't care what, like, the, the industry standard is for resumes right now. I was like, I think it's good to have, like, just a... And, and so what I put on my resume was a heading that, at the top that just said, what I offer professionally. And then just, like, a, a succinct paragraph... Not even explaining my skills, just explaining like my mindset, my philosophy, and like temperament. And you know what? I think it was it was a good decision. I got like more more interview opportunities in a short amount of time than ever. 
And it, I, I think it was a good decision. And they probably would tell you not to put that on there. Like, they'd probably be like, oh, your resume is too busy. Oh, it's, it's unnecessary. Nobody's putting objectives. Well, it wasn't an objective. It was a, simply like what I offered professionally. It's kind of a writing sample. It shows like your ability to communicate. But I just, I just decided I don't care like what websites or what like work source classes tell you about current quote unquote CVs. I was like, I'm going to put that on there. And I think that it will do what I want it to do. And, uh, but anyway, going back to like the CV thing, like, I don't know if people were always using that, like maybe certain types of jobs always preferred to use that, but it's like, I think like, it's just trends, you know, like it's what I always say about car designs where it's like every five to 10 years, every car company like changes car designs from like round to square and each time they do it like customers are like oh my god you see that new car it's like so new it's so different but it's really just kind of like this back and forth like you know change the car designs from square to round and back again i mean i think it's like the same thing with uh you know resumes and like job interviews and that kind of thing where like every five to ten years like this memo goes out and this decision gets made that like we're not doing this anymore we're doing this we're not calling it a resume anymore we're calling it a cv and something about that just bothers me like was resume not exotic enough was it not fancy enough was the word not cool enough cv sounds better and anyway, like approaching like interviews and stuff this last round, I actually really enjoyed the interviews. You think that's like hell. Like nobody likes job interviews. I, I know that I'm officially sick because I, I found the interview process. I went to multiple interviews. I was nervous beforehand. I, was, I wouldn't even say nervous. I was anxious beforehand and afterward. But when I was at the actual interview, I actually really enjoyed it because I was like... I feel more than capable of like improvise. Like that's what it is. It's like you're going to sit down with this person you've never met and you have to like improvise a conversation. Like even if what they're asking you is rehearsed and they have like a set number of questions, it's still like two human beings who just ended up in this room who don't know each other who both have like pressure on them. Like you have the pressure of like, if it's a job you want, like one, you're finding out if it's a job you even want. Like I went to one interview and ended up turning down the job offer because uh, like the job itself didn't sound bad, but like even just being in the interview, I felt drained afterward. And I, I could visualize myself going to this place every day and being really unhappy. Whereas this other place that I ended up taking it's pretty chaotic. It's, it's a whole different industry than I've worked in before. But I, it doesn't drain me. And I, my, my, on a gut level, I liked it. But like this other place, it was just, you're going to feel them out. Like they feel pressure. Like they're trying to fill a position. And if it doesn't work out, they're going to be back doing that again. So like they have to make a wise decision. I've had to interview people at jobs before. It's it, it's stressful unto itself. It's like, even though in theory you're in the position of power, it's still like a first date between two people. And, hey dog. But uh, it's still almost like a first date feeling. And like as an employer, like, sometimes you're nervous and you don't know what to say. Like you don't know what to ask. Like, I had to do an interview many years ago with, um, like, my boss and I interviewed a guy for a job we had open that was going to be part of our team. And, like, we were totally unprepared for his questions. He was an older guy who was very experienced in this line of work. And he asked us some questions that just made us feel like idiots. Like, we couldn't even answer these questions about our own company. And we were both just like, uh... And, uh... So it's like, even though you will go into interviews where like someone's really confident and they know they have the upper hand, like we have a job and you need a job and you should be shaking. The reality is like, this is two human beings 
in a really weird and unnatural situation who are having to improvise a conversation and they as an employer if they think you're a good candidate they have to make it sound appealing because you might turn them down and then you as as the you know the prospective employee like you have to then make yourself appealing and it's like on the spot improvisation they might throw I mean, the interview that I turned down, the lady asked me, I'd never had an interview that, where they asked me questions like, what was your biggest failure? What was your proudest moment? She asked me that. And she, and the thing was, it was, it was like this two hour long interview, which is way too long, but she just kind of wanted to keep showing me the business because she wanted to hire me. But like she, we'd be, ta- she'd be like talking about the company, talking about herself, talk, like I'd be talking about me. And then she'd just, she'd remember that like you were supposed to ask these certain questions and she'd be like, what was the proudest moment of your life? And I'm like, geez, like how the fuck do I answer that? And then she asked me like, what was your biggest failure? And I feel like on the spot, like biggest failure, I was like, well, there's not one single moment that I would consider like a failure. I was like, when I was younger though, like when I was a teenager and in my early twenties, I just had a really cynical mindset and I feel like it held me back. And it wasn't like it caused one like central failure. But when I look back at that, I'm like, it didn't, it definitely held me back. It didn't serve me to be so cynical and I had no reason to be that way. And that's the absolute truth too. But uh, I, I, I wouldn't, even speaking honestly, like it's not just one of those responses where it's like, oh, my biggest, my biggest uh, weakness is that like I work really hard. I work too hard. It's not one of those like bullshit answers you give that like sounds like a weakness, but it's actually like, you know, got velvet lace around it. It's, it, that's actually an honest answer. Like I wouldn't be able to look back at anything I've done in my life and tell you it was a failure. Not because I haven't failed, just because like I, I just don't even know. I, I never think about anything in my life as some kind of central failure. Like there's things that I could have done better or differently or whatever. But it's like I can't honestly just be like, oh, my biggest failure was when this happened. Same thing for proudest moments. And like whatever my proudest moments are too, they're not really like suited for a job interview. Not because they're inappropriate. They're just really not. Like for that one, I just said, oh, well, you know, my mom died a, three, a few years ago and I don't mean to like get too personal, but it's like, you know, being the, the, the sole person in my family to deal with that. Like I had to deal with that by myself and handle it, do all the practical stuff. And I was very proud of how I conducted myself under those circumstances. I wasn't trying to like invoke like the the American Idol like oh my mom died hire me my mom died hire me you know I wasn't trying to be that way about it it was an, it was truthful too I think that is one of my proudest moments just like I feel like I handled my mom's death with grace and also the pressure of like the practical things I had to deal with so like that was an honest answer too but like what threw me off is the lady would like remember that she was supposed to ask questions like that and like throw them at me randomly it wasn't like she just went through a list of questions and uh she uh like at one point too she was like she threw another one at me where she was like on a scale of one to ten how ready are you to work here and i was like huh i was like i'd say a nine and she goes a nine and I was like, yeah. I was like, it's because I mean, at that point, I was just, I was kind of leading her on, because like, like she clearly, like she wanted to hire me, but uh, I was kind of like, I didn't want to rule it out, like I didn't want to turn it down, like if I had to take it or something, or like if it ended up being the best job or something, like I, I would take it, whatever. But I was like a nine, and she was kind of taken aback that I said nine and not ten. Because one, like, if you say 10, that's a dishonest answer. Like, if, 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 a, if a, an employer is like, on a scale of 1 to 10, how excited are you to start work? And you say 10, you're a liar. 9 
shows in a, a lot of enthusiasm, like a nine out of ten. That's a lot of enthusiasm. But I could tell, like, she was kind of expecting me to say ten or something, and she's like, "Why nine? And I was like, "Well, like, because it sounds great." But I was like, I can tell that I would need, I would need a certain amount of training in these certain parts of the job that I haven't done before. Like, it does sound like there's maybe a little bit of a learning curve with certain parts of the job, which is the truth. Certain parts of it I, I knew that I, I already had the skills to do. Certain parts I'd never done before in a very specific niche business. And she was like, oh, that makes sense. But it was like, if you say 10, you're just, you're a liar. And even if that's the answer they're looking for, like by saying nine, it was communicating, I'm enthusiastic, but I'm giving you an honest answer that I've thought about. Again, you just, you improvise. It's not like I plot, I planned this. But uh, that, that same job, like I had to take a personality test before the interview where like, it's all those cliche questions that are like, on a scale of one to five, you are very organized. I always take responsibility, on a scale of one to five, I always take responsibility for my mistakes. And like, you're supposed to answer five, but you have like a hundred questions like that. And like, if you have half a brain, you know how to answer every single one. Like if they ask you, like, I am a very organized person, you're of course gonna put five. If it says like, I think it's okay to steal from work, you're gonna do a one. But what I do, cause you could answer every single one, five and one. And what, it's not actually asking like what you, you're like. It's not actually asking you to be honest. It's asking you to, it's, it's seeing if you know what the right answer is. But it's kind of like the, the nine that I gave on the other question, where like with those personality quizzes, there'll be a couple of them, a few of them, where I do like a four or a two. Because I don't want them to get the results and just see that it's all fives and ones. Because it, it just, it communicates dishonesty that you're just saying the right thing all the time, that you think you're perfect. And even though that's the right answer, and ultimately what they're testing is not whether you're perfect, but whether, you're, whether you have the ability to understand those questions and answer them to make yourself look good. It's kind of like employment gaps. This is just a whole, I should teach job classes. I should teach you how to, I should be a headhunter who teaches people how to make resumes, but it's kind of like employment gaps where that's one of those things you always hear where, oh, if you have any employment gaps in your resume, employers are just going to throw your resume right in the garbage. They're not even going to look at it if they see an employment gap. Oh, if you're not currently employed, the, resume, the, the, the employer won't even look at your resume. You always hear things like that. And it's silly. Like, I, you understand why that mindset is there. Like, if you're looking at a resume and there's, like, a bunch of employment gaps, it, you know, or someone's not currently employed, it, it could suggest that person isn't a hard worker or they're not going to stay with you. You know, I understand why you, that could be seen as a red flag. It's stupid when it's done just by rote, like, where it's just like, oh, I see, I see an employment gap, throwing the resume out. But I understand why, like, you might look at that and go, huh. This person took a, a break from, from having a job. Oh my God, who are they? What's wrong with them? You know, I understand why they think that way, even though I don't fully agree. But another part of it, it's kind of like the personality quiz where part of it is like knowing how to hide that. Like like part of, part of what it is, it's like when you're making a resume, as long as you have references like basically, like as long as you can actually do the skills that you say you can do, and as long as you can learn the skills they need you to learn, you can pretty much say anything you want on your resume. Like you can lie, you can make things up if you want to. 
it's not necessarily the best thing to do, but you could. If you have employment gaps, you can get creative. You can take a half truth and turn it into you know something else. Just to, just so that like they don't look at your resume and say, oh, there's an employment gap. Because as long as you have references for like a few of your jobs, a couple of your jobs, they're not going to care. They're not going to know. They're not going to know where you worked between like 2008 and 2009. You could say you worked somewhere and it's not like they're going to like look that up. Maybe some, like maybe if you're working for the CIA or, you know, I'm sure there are some jobs that like, I mean, if you try to work for the FBI, like they call your like childhood neighbor and interview them. But most jobs out there, like they're not going to, you don't need a reference for every single job on your resume. So part of the test is like, if there are things about you that, that don't look great on paper, your ability to, your ability to like make it convincing shows something. It's kind of like your ability to answer the personality quiz, not honestly, not 100% honestly, but knowing what the right answer is. That's part of the test because the job you're going to get, like chances are you're, you're going to play a role and not be 100% who you are anyway. And they want to know that. Like, can you play that role convincingly? Can you do that convincingly? And so that's a part of the, the job application process too. Can, like, even if there are, even if there are things about you that might not appeal to an employer, can you tie it all up with a bow on it and make a convincing argument otherwise? Are you creative enough? Can you think outside of the box enough? You know, that's one of those, um, it's one of those things. Like, can you come up with something? Can you improvise? But anyway, whole tangent on that. Um, anything else I was going to say? Uh, what got me going on that was just like the changing language, the changing uh, you know terminology, and how like you even see that in the job market. I mean, even like certain jobs I've had in the past, like when I worked in tech, I'll notice that like certain terms we used for what we did, they use something else now. And, like, if you have the old term on your resume, like, and are applying for that type of job, they might be like, ooh, like, we, we say this now. And this, and it does become, like, very political political, because, like, you can see that certain political uh, beliefs lend themselves more to that. Like, where it's, like, people who are constantly updating language, constantly changing language. But you see it everywhere. Like, it, basically, like, what it comes down to is, like, how do you react to unnecessary, what you consider unnecessary change? And I think even making that distinction makes you a little bit conservative. Like, if you're even capable of thinking about what's a necessary change versus an unnecessary change, what kind of changes are rooted in something substantial versus things that are just arbitrarily changed on a whim? And I think if you're even able to make a distinction between necessary change and unnecessary change, you're a little bit conservative. You're, you're, you know, if you don't want to call the grocery store by its new name, even though it's owned by the same parent company, if you don't want to call the park by its new name when it was called by the previous name for decades, if you don't want to, uh, call it an emoji. You'd rather call it an emoticon. You'd rather call it by the other name you hated, but the new one's worse because it's new. You know, any of that, like that's a conservative impulse and it's not just political, political, like all sorts of people have that. But, uh, yeah, I think what it is, it's like you see certain changes and you think, oh, that wasn't, that was an unnecessary change that you did. And not only is it an unnecessary change, but you feel like you didn't have any say on it. And a part of you feels like there was some sort of conspiracy. Like, who made this decision? Where did this change come from? Because this was a decision somebody made. This is a decision a group made. It's they. 
kind of like I was saying about the job hunting industry, which is an industry unto itself, where it's like, who made the decision that, like, it's trendy now to call it a CV instead of a resume? Who decided that? Maybe there's no decision. It just kind of goes that way. It's just sort of like monkey see, monkey do. You know, like me writing what I offer professionally at the top of my resume, even though somebody else might tell me not to do that. Well, somebody else might see that and be like, that's a good idea. Oh, got him a job. Helped him get a job. And what's funny about that is like the feedback, like going back into like the job hunting industry. Like they're always like, employers aren't going to like this. Employers are going to like this. And it's like, I'm sure they do some kind of polling. I'm sure they talk to employers who like tell them what they like and don't like about resumes. But it's like, how many employers actually give that kind of feedback? Like when I've conducted job interviews to hire people at, at previous jobs I've been at, I don't like tell it. I don't. I don't tell them or anybody else like what I liked. I actually forget about their resume. Like once I decide that like this person is a candidate, I might have it in front of me. Like I've only done a few interviews, but like I might have it in front of me. But once I've already decided if they're a candidate, like I'm just there to get a feel for them. And just like talk to them. It doesn't like there's not even that much focus on the resume itself or their credentials. Like maybe if it was specific to some like something that you have to go to school for. Like making sure they, they can actually code or do what they say they can do. But beyond that, it's like once you've kind of approved of their resume, like you don't think about it. You don't say like, oh, I like this about your resume. Oh, I like that you said this. I like that your resume wasn't too busy. I like that your resume had a headshot or didn't have a headshot. You know, it's like all that stuff. You don't even remember it afterward. So I, I imagine a lot of it, though, like, it's not even like some grand conspiracy. It's kind of like slang, where it's not like there's some conspiracy where people suddenly adopt new slang. It happens organically. Like, when the word tight got popular... It's like, I'm sure some charismatic, popular kid started using tight. He might not even have been the one who first used it. But it's like that kid started using it, and other kids were like, oh, they're saying tight now. If I call things tight, I'm going to be cool. Because tight means cool now. If I start saying tight, I'm going to be tight. It's organic, like it's monkey see, monkey do. A charismatic person, it's fashion, it's haircuts. Like on Monday, a dorky kid who has no friends might get a haircut that gets him made fun of. But on Tuesday, a charismatic and popular kid might get the same haircut and all of a sudden it's the coolest thing in the world. This stuff happens arbitrarily. It's not like a, a council of teenagers gets together and is like, we've decided on this new slang. But in effect, that's kind of what happens just more subtly and organically. And I imagine it's true for all these other things. I imagine it's kind of true for like all the things I'm talking about where it's like, it's not some grand conspiracy. It's just kind of like someone does something, someone makes a suggestion, someone like sees somebody say something else, and then it just kind of spreads and it kind of becomes the new standard. And with all that stuff too, like once the new standard is set, people get sick of that. It's for the same reason that like when all the car companies are making cars with rounded edges for five years, all it takes is somebody like squaring a car off, like making a boxy car. And people are like, look at that, it's amazing. You know, it's the same thing, where it's just like something new emerges, it's novel by very de by the very definition, it's, it's a novelty. The novelty becomes the new normal. And then people get sick of it and they start looking for something else. And many case in many cases, that something else is something that was being done 20 years ago, 50 years ago, you know, it's, it's that sort of thing. So it's not that I think there's some grand conspiracy to change everything. 
it's just that like human beings get sick of the way things are and they want change they want new words they want to change the name of the park they want to call a resume a cv but then like that becomes the new norm and you have to do something else to set yourself apart but i think if you are capable of making a distinction between necessary change and unnecessary change I think it, it means you're a little bit like me, whether you like it or not. This land is mine. God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free.